Hello, and welcome to the Highly Spirited Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie McNew, and you may already know me from the ABV Networks, the Bourbon Daily, the Bourbon Talk Show on YouTube, and my other show, Bottle Kills and Last Meals. I love all things boozy and boozy. So every other week, I'm bringing you some spirit or cocktail history and a ghost story, maybe something to do with folklore, or definitely something supernatural. So get ready to get lit and get scared. Welcome to episode seven. So I have a story for you guys, and it's not really a spooky news story, but since we're going to be talking about pirates and their ships today, I thought it might be appropriate anyways. Maybe not. I don't know. A few months ago, the Army Corps of Engineers found cannons in the Savannah River. The cannons are believed to be from a British warship, which was sunk there during the Revolutionary War. After initially finding one cannon, they dredged the river and turned up 19. I guess they like blocked off and dredged like 40 miles of this river to find these things. They believe the ship they belonged to was the HMS Savannah that was sunk on purpose during the Battle of 1779 to keep the French ships from advancing up the river. And what a wild plan there. Like, I'm going to sink my ship so it wrecks yours and you can't get through. (laughs) It's great, great planning. (laughs) The cannons are currently being stored in water tanks for now because until they can be properly cleaned and preserved. Cause I guess there was a fear that they were just gonna crumble cause they'd been underwater so long. I don't know. And they're very rusty. Some are hoping that they, some are hoping that they have them displayed in the Savannah Histo- History Museum once they're ready. And I read all of this in a New York Times article. So not really anything to do with pirates, but definitely a cool piece of ship and war history we now have. And it also, this part is freaky. How deep is that river? to be deep enough to have a sunken ship in it. I don't, I know rivers get deep, but I don't think of them being that deep. (laughs) So that was a little blind mind blowing to me, but I do think this is a cool piece of history. And Savannah is a very cool city, a very haunted city. I'm going to get to them later this year too. Um, I love Savannah. So hopefully I can see those when I make it back there sometime. Two days cocktail is the daiquiri. But not those candy sweet, frozen, boozy things you can get from a Louisiana drive-thru or the ones that are in the yard-long plastic cups to walk down Bourbon Street with. Those are frozen daiquiris, and they're great and all, and I do enjoy them. But I wanted to dive into the history of actual daiquiris today. They're quite different from the frozen concoctions people think of today when they hear daiquiris. The original daiquiri was a very simple cocktail. It consisted of a tall glass packed with ice with two teaspoons of sugar poured over the ice, the juice of one to two limes squeezed over the sugar, then topped off with three ounces of white rum. Then all the ingredients were stirred with a bar spoon. It was light. It was certainly boozy. And a later version of the daiquiri had all the same ingredients, but put into a shaker, then poured into a coupe glass. The name daiquiri was also the name of a beach in an iron mine in Santiago, Cuba. The drink was possibly created by an American mining engineer named Jennings Cox, who was working in Cuba towards the end of the Spanish-American War. Credit for creating the daiquiri has also been given to a man named William A. Chandler, who bought the iron mines in 1902, then later introduced the drink to clubs in New York. The drink gained popularity in the 1940s when World War II made whiskey and gin harder to get, but white rum was still readily available. But even before the 1900s, the daiquiri may have actually been created by British sailors in the late 1700s to ward off scurvy on long trips, except they called it grog. 
The Royal Navy's grog rations consisted of rum, water, three-fourths lemon or lime juice, whatever they could get their hands on, and two ounces of sugar. Today we know the daiquiri was several variations. Many are frozen, made with a pre-made mix. <laughs> Some contain various fruits or additives, changing the flavors as well. But they can absolutely still be made the old-fashioned way, and they're so much nicer that way. A big fan of daiquiris was American author Ernest Hemingway, and he put his own spin on the drink. The Hemingway daiquiri consists of two and a half jiggers of white rum, juice of two limes, and half a grapefruit, six drops of maraschino liqueur without sugar. His sounds pretty sweet without needing that sugar anyways. <laughs> so let's grab a daiquiri any which way you like it, and we'll take a quick break, and we'll be back for some pirate ghosts. Welcome back. We're now going to jump into some stories about pirate ghosts or ghost of pirates. However you want to say it, we're going to talk about some swashbuckling spirits. Obviously, I have to start with the most infamous pirate of all, Edward Teach, aka Blackbeard. Teach may have actually been a legit privateer during Queen Anne's War, but he ended up in the Bahamas on an island called New Providence and turned himself into a full-fledged pirate. He commandeered a French slave ship and named her Queen Anne's Revenge. He equipped the ship with guns and men and, and then began his pirating voyage around the Bahamas, eventually landing himself in North Carolina. He became known as Blackbeard because of his long black beard, obviously. And to make himself appear more sinister, he would light long fuses beneath it before going into battle. Most just chose to surrender, then fight the frightening pirate. So he had to look crazy, right? Like he wasn't trying to blow himself up, but he would literally like make his beard look smoky, make it look like he was appearing out of smoke just by lighting fuses under his beard, which oh, seems like a good way to light your face on fire. But what do I know? <laughs> In the Carolinas, Blackbeard found out the definition of fuck around and find out. He received a royal pardon that was offered to pirates for surrendering. But soon after, he was right back to his pirating ways. And soon after that, Governor of Virginia, Alexander Spotswood, sent his lieutenant, John Maynard, to execute the pirate. Like, look, we, we forgave you once. You went right back to it. We're done. Maynard, Maynard found Blackbeard's ship anchored off the coast of Ocracoke Island on November 22, 1718. A battle ensued, and Maynard and his men defeated Blackbeard and his crew. He beheaded Blackbeard and threw his body overboard. Maynard kept the head and hung it on his ship for his return trip. Blackbeard's head was placed on a stake at the entrance to Chesapeake Bay for several years as a warning to other pirates. I'm impressed that it lasted there a year, like birds didn't pick it apart, like ugh, gross anyway. <laughs> as we've learned from the Headless Horseman story, dudes who lose their head usually become pretty pissed off spirits in their afterlife. Near Ocracoke Island where Blackbeard was beheaded was his hangout spot where he usually anchored. It was referred to as Teach's Hole. Some report seeing his ghost there glowing beneath the water, as if he's still trying to light fuses into his beard and submerged. <laughs> Some even report him crying out during storms, where's my head? Up next is Captain William Kidd, another privateer turned pirate. Kidd was actually beloved by the Crown and hired to protect their ships. He fucked up his career and reputation when he overtook an Armenian ship near India. The British were not thrilled when they heard about this and labeled Kidd a pirate. 
So he island hopped until making his way to New York, United States, where he buried his treasure before his trial and execution. It's rumored that Kidd buried his treasure on Block Island and Liberty Island. And the Liberty Island rumor may have some truth to it. In 1835, two men believed the treasure was buried here and went looking for it. Because why not? <laughs> What's the worst that could happen when looking for some guy's hidden loot? Apparently, they were able to locate the treasure chest, but before they could get it open, a horrid-looking, angry ghost of Captain Kidd himself appeared, looking like a demon straight out of hell, and scared the men so badly they fainted. And when they came to, they just fled without the treasure. Don't need that. No, thank you. <laughs> so I'm going to wrap up this episode with one of my personal favorite pirates, Jean Lafitte. And maybe he's only my favorite because I've been to his blacksmith shop in New Orleans and I love that little bar, but I'll have more on that later. First, let's talk about Lafitte himself. Lafitte was a privateer along with his brother Pierre, who were, who were born French. They operated the Gulf of Mexico from Louisiana, including Barataria Island, to Galveston, where he had a little colony called Campeche. Although Lafitte made most of his fortune by importing stolen goods and coins inland, he was said to have gentlemanlike demeanor and good manners. He was well-dressed, but also loved women, gambling, and booze. A gentleman and a pirate. <laughs> All that to say, Lafitte was fairly well-regarded and even helped Andrew Jackson defend New Orleans in the Battle of New Orleans in the War of 1812. He was also a spy for the Spanish during the MX during the Mexican War of Independence in 1817. So overall, Jean Lafitte wasn't necessarily a bad guy for a pirate. Like, he was almost like a society guy. People liked him. But let's get to what we're here for, the hauntings. Lafitte's blacksmith shop is a cute little building on the corner of Bourbon Street and St. Philip Street. This was a legitimate appearing business for Jean and his brother Pierre, but it was also a front for their pirating as well. <laughs> The little shop is now operated as a bar, and I love it. It has a signature purple drink if you're interested in getting all the tourist drinks while you're on Bourbon Street. The bar is lit by candles, lanterns, and the fireplace, and it really sets the mood to make you think about spirits other than the drink you're ordering. Legend has it that some of Lafitte's treasure is still hidden within the bricks of the shop, and near the downstairs fireplace, Lafitte's men still watch over it in their afterlife. The ghost of Jean Lafitte has been spotted by guests as well, and some guests report feeling cold spots throughout the bar. When I visited, I was told there was a lot of activity in the ladies' room if you went by yourself, such as cold spots, sightings, all of that, like seeing his figure in there. And I will admit, I love ghost stories. I love hearing them. I love telling them, but I don't like living them. <laughs> so I was always too afraid to not drag a friend in there with me when I had to go. So I didn't have any experience in the Lafitte blacksmith bathroom. But if you did, uh, send them to me. I do want to hear about it. It's definitely a cool little place. So that's going to wrap up today's show. Please join me again in two weeks for some more highly spirited stories. Until then, please like and review and give me a follow on Instagram or our Facebook page at Highly Spirited Podcast. Bye, guys.